and welcome to part eight of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we're whisked away into a world of monsters, witches, and ghouls in our review of Miyazaki's iconic 2001 adventure, Spirited Away. But first, how are you guys? I'm doing well, Scott. I think the last time we spoke, uh, NBA basketball had just come back. Now we're a week in, and my bedtime has uh, been pushed back about two hours thanks to living on the East Coast and loving a team on the West. But, you know, we're, we're powering through. We're, we're getting what needs to get done done and then enjoying just lots and lots of sports. It's also the equinox. I guess I should mention that um, if people really want to know exactly what day we're talking. I think the 30th time ever where all four major American sports have games on the same day. So big day for sports fans, which I'm sure is the, you know, the target audience for people listening to the or target audience to this podcast. The equinox? Yeah, is that like a is that like a the sports equinox is like the what it's affectionately yeah. referred okay. to as. Yeah, it it it, okay. it very rarely happens. I actually didn't even think about that. But yeah, you pointed it out. Of course, the World Series, Monday night football, and then regular slate of NBA and um and NHL games. So no uh, no Monday pretty, soccer pretty cool. for the PL this time. Sorry, sorry everyone. Yeah, we couldn't get couldn't get that in there anyway. But um, yeah, there's probably some MLS playoffs or something going on. Maybe who knows? Uh, they they are going on right now. So yeah, but I don't know if there's a game tonight, but probably. I, I don't know, and I don't care enough to to even run a simple Google search to find Messi out. Messi won so, the Ballon d'Or yeah. today. Does that count? He did. Yes. That yeah. counts. I'll, I'll count that. Okay. He did. Um, Scott, how are you? I'm good. I. Uh... Look, my my sports fandom is is solely focused on soccer. I've never heard of baseball, basketball, or hockey or football. Um, none of those none of those sports exist for me right now. Manchester City beat Manchester United this weekend three zero. So full steam ahead. I, this time last year, I was going to say it wasn't full steam ahead because the World Cup was about to start in less than a month. But this year, True. we have a full slate of regular regular soccer uh, happening during Thanksgiving, which is nice. Although I guess in many ways, I actually watched more soccer over Thanksgiving last year because of the World Cup, not less. But anyway, the only sport that I really care about at this point since the Braves have lost in in the playoffs. We watched the World Cup together, actually, Scott, I believe. We watched uh, watched the U.S. England game. (laughs) It wasn't a 0-0 draw. Oh, my God. Rather uneventful, but um, yeah. Anyway, that was was good. Yeah, no, uh, it, it is a good time for sports, but it's also a good time for movies. You know, it's, we're trickling into award season as far as general releases go. And that means we're getting a lot of the, the big prestige movies. It also means we're going to be getting the boy and the heron soon enough uh, for, you know, of course the, the non indoctrinated who have not seen the film yet being me and Jay um, here, but um, yeah, that have that to look forward to too. This movie, um, you know, one of my biggest personal blind spots for several years now. I, this has been a big year for me and blind spot clearing, not to make this about me, but um, I have watched a few movies this year that are big, big blind spots on my um, watch list coming into the year. The Apartment was one of them, Billy Wilder's classic. The other one, another one that I recently watched was Forrest Gump, which was my biggest 
blind spot for many, many years. Could have remained a blind spot, and I would have been perfectly happy now that I've seen the movie, but um, I digress. And then, no, yeah, so this was this was another big one. It's been a, been a big year, and I'm excited to talk about this one. So why don't we just get Spe- into well, it? Well, speaking of Boy and the Heron, though, actually, because before Spirited Away at Ghibli Fest, they actually played the credits song for The Boy and the Heron. They played, like, a live performance of the credits song called, I think it's called Spinning Globe. And they had a talk back with the artist of the song talking about working with Miyazaki on Boy and the Heron after Spirited Away. But the but Boy and the Heron obviously is not out in the U.S. Yeah, just a very funny thing that they were doing. I mean, the the song, like, you know, I think it's great that people are hearing it because it's a great piece of music. But I thought it was just kind of funny that they're doing this like Boy and the Heron talk back. The film's not out yet. And before Spirit, like after Spirit Away, it's just like kind of a strange thing that happened. I'm sure they didn't talk about any spoilers in the film, but it's like also kind of like weird that they were doing that, in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah, no, that that's that's very odd because I can't imagine that many people there other than you, Scott, possibly had have seen Boy in the Heron. But, yeah, maybe so. It is. It's possible. I mean, it's possible because it did show three times at the New York Film Festival, showed two nights and then on on sort of like the final weekend where they show sort of like most popular of the festival type movies. Right. So it's totally possible that some people, other people in the film in the theater had, but not inherently likely. I wouldn't say. Sure. Yeah. Which, which does make it a little bit of a weird stunt, but um, yeah, no good, good, good on y'all for getting to see it in theaters. It, it was in theaters around here as part of the Ghibli fest, but I've just been too busy to catch it. So just watched it at home, but um, yeah. As mentioned today, our film is Spirited Away, arguably Miyazaki's most beloved and celebrated film. Spirited Away centers on 10-year-old Chihiro, voiced by Davy Chase, who is traveling to a new home with her parents when the trio stumble across a seemingly abandoned amusement park along the way. Finding tables of piping hot and delicious food left alone in the park, Chihiro's parents begin to engorge themselves, but before they know it, they're certainly they are suddenly turned into pigs and the exit to the park becomes blocked by a wall of water. After a young boy named Haku, voiced by Jason Marsden, extends a helpful hand to Chihiro, she finds herself in a world of spirits and magical beings, most of whom don't look kindly on their new human inhabitant. Searching for a job in this new world in hopes of freeing her parents, Chihiro encounters the tyrannical witch Yubaba, voiced by Suzanne Plachette, who controls people by taking their names. Chihiro, who receives the new name Sin, learns a hard truth from Haku. If she forgets her name, then she is doomed to live in the world of spirits forever. Determined not to let this happen, Chihiro starts working at the bathhouse, and her interactions with the others there, including fellow employee Len, voiced by Susan Egan, Yubaba's overgrown infant son, Bo, voiced by Tara Strong, and the mysterious and possibly sinister spirit, No Face, voiced by Bob Bergen, will soon take her on an unpredictable journey where she will have to rely on her inherent compassion and determination if she is to rescue her parents and return to the human world. Jay, we'll start with you. Spirited Away is regarded nowadays as possibly the greatest animated film ever made. Did Miyazaki's crown jewel glimmer as bright for you as for the masses, or did it fail to further the ideas and imagery on display and some of other Miyazaki's other fantastical adventures? It glimmered very, very, very bright for me, Scott. I 
You know, I almost felt like a disservice had been done to me with all these people. I think maybe even including at least one of you, but maybe not. Um, you know, just calling this a perfect film before. Well, Scott hadn't seen it until a few days ago, well, so it wasn't, it wasn't, you, it wasn't Scott, the other. One. It wasn't the other Scott. Someone, <laughs> I, 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 true, I wasn't even just trying to like leave your name. I feel like a few people. It's possible you were one of them. Scott Shelton had referred to this as a perfect film before, and if not in those exact words, like I feel like that has been a prevailing sentiment. Uh, um, you know, among a lot of people I've heard talk about this movie, even just people I would tell that I'm seeing this movie, you know, would, you know, would just start gushing. Oh my God, your life's going to change. This is the greatest thing ever and whatnot. And it's really hard to go into a movie with that type of expectation. Though I feel like, if, I do feel like if you live under a, unless you live under a rock, you're probably going to go into this movie with those expectations. And it was still just, I mean, like, how do you, how do you live up to that? Um, it, I mean, it, it somehow just did like, it was, I, I walked out and I really didn't have words. I mean, Scott, you were looking at me like, what'd you think? I'm like, I'll tell you tomorrow. Cause I need a day to sit on this. I didn't and... say anything to you. I was letting you, I was letting you process. Everyone else was asking you what you thought. I didn't say anything. <laughs> I, I don't know. I thought, I thought you shot me a look just like, so, and I'm like, I don't know, man. Like ask no, me I tomorrow. pulled out my phone after I was looking at my phone. I wasn't even looking at you. you all, all of that pressure that you say for me is totally imagined on your part. I think it was just some of the best storytelling I've seen, period. Like, I think its ability to tell a story with a protagonist that I think, you know, I, I think I remember last week, uh, Scott Harvey, you were saying that, you know, you felt like Chihiro was a protagonist you related more to than uh, the protagonist of Princess Mononoke last week. And Scott Shelton maybe was like giving you a hard time about that. But I feel like Chihiro's written in such a way that, I, you know, that is not. Everyone. That's what we. That's what we had a conversation about last week. Yeah, there, there was a. There was a. It was a throwaway line, but I. I thought I we were talking about Porco Rosso, not. Not was it Chihiro. Porco Rosso? No, it was, it was definitely Porco. It was. I thought it was Chihiro. Anyway, um, I don't remember it going down exactly like that. But we're, that's, we're gonna yeah. play the tape after this. Yeah. But it's fine. I. Point is, I find Chihiro someone that I think you know most, if not all of us, could like, you know, relate to in some way, and the strength that she's able to summon, you know, in this in this situation is just like so admirable and you know her 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 struggle right being just like thrown into this completely strange world i think like we could all relate to on some way and again it's just a really it's another case of just you know having a child protagonist like display these amazing qualities right that you you know hope to maybe see in yourself or in those around you and like i I don't know. I, I walked out of there and I was like, you know, I'll, I'll even just zero in like the, you know, the, the interactions he ends up having with no face, right. And his whole arc, I feel like is one of the best, if not the best, like stories told of like, you know, this person is not inherently like this, but like in this one situation, you know, a, a, like if, if you're able to give them that compassion, you'll see that they're not just what they are in this one situation. And I thought that was like really spectacular. Like that, that was what I felt like actually hit hardest for me. Um, and maybe that's not a wild take, but I don't know because I haven't spoken to anyone about this movie. So all in all, like, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the other technical elements, but I mean, just really phenomenal. Like I, I do feel like people need to stop hyping it up so much. And yet like it, it did, I mean, like to people who haven't seen it, I mean, but yet, you know, I walked out and I'm like, damn, like they, people weren't wrong. Scott, you're the uh, the veteran when it comes to this movie, the one who had seen it before. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, 
I don't know how I've described the film to Jay in the past, but I think one of the things that I often tell people about when I whenever I watch this movie, because I think I've maybe even more so it's like this or Kiki's is the one that I've seen the most at this point. But it's just like every time I watch this movie, I don't know if it's my favorite film of all time, but I just sort of watch the film and I'm like, is this like one of the greatest films or the greatest film ever made? Like maybe. And I think Jay highlights a lot of the things that make it some of the just some of the most compelling sort of open-hearted, earnest storytelling in a way that doesn't come off as cliche or kitschy or leave sort of a, a, a sour or maybe overly saccharine taste in the mouth. Because I think that there's these really sort of climactic, emotionally soaring moments in the film that exist. And they could really land, not the wrong way, but they could be eye-rolly. Right. Like the there's a big moment towards the end of this film where the score swells. And actually, it, for people who are listeners of the podcast all the way to the end, including the music at the end, the music at the end of the podcast is the music that's sort of in the climactic scene in this film. And, you know, that's like maybe one of my favorite theatrical score uh, moments, like in all of movies. But but like that moment itself in the film can come off as like super sort of cliche and eye rolly as Chihiro and Haku sort of have this moment together where, you know, basically not Chihiro is able to give to Haku what Haku gave to Chihiro earlier in the film. And there's this moment of sort of reciprocity and like shared exuberance between the two of them as they fly back to Yababa's bathhouse that I don't know, like it just sort of the whole the film sort of just earns its its right to have that moment and not come off in a way that feels slightly off kilter in a manner of speaking. And I think that's just sort of like that is a microcosm for the whole film. I think it blends so many different elements and frankly, a lot of things that 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 Miyazaki like hadn't really done before up to this point. I mean, maybe there's a discussion at the end of the at the end of the series about whether he does again, where he's really playing with a lot of different visuals and element and elements of his filmmaking, you know, kind of a scary horror vibe at times, even for some of the stuff where Chihiro is like sort of first understanding and learning about the bathhouse. There's like some pretty scary scenes that, you know, not not only sort of make you jump as you're watching the film if you're not if you don't expect what's coming but also just like kind of like Chihiro must be experiencing are like very overwhelming probably for a younger person or a first-time viewer who is not familiar with what this film is trying to accomplish and I think one of the things that this film does even more so than any other films that Miyazaki has put together today is really put you into the shoes of Chihiro in a way that I, I don't think he manages to do that in, in other movies the same way part of that's a function of that so many of the other protagonists of the film are yes they're they're exploring places like so so the recurring theme is that you're exploring these new places through Miyazaki's movies and characters but you don't always feel or at least I don't always feel like I'm even though I love these movies and love these characters exactly like I'm experiencing the thing the same way the characters are experiencing but so much of spirited away feels like you're experiencing exactly what hero is experiencing and i think that's like a real feat of the of the format because i think it's kind of hard it's really hard to do that i think in in movies and in, in compared to like maybe other mediums like even like 
with a book or with a video game. I think there's a lot more ability to immerse one into the experience more than movies, but but this film manages to do it, and I think it's a real accomplishment. But yeah, there's like so much I could say. Yeah, the Joe Hisaishi score, which I started to talk about already, like it's my favorite of all of Miyazaki's movies, which is a pretty high bar based on stuff that we've already talked about on this podcast, being such a huge fan of Castle in the Sky and Kiki's Delivery Service and Princess Mononoke last week, which Jay mentioned, I realized like 15 minutes after we stopped recording that like no one else had said anything about the Hisaishi score. And I'm just like, well, that was probably an oversight on our part. Oh, well, but yeah, the score here is just, I mean, unbelievable. I talked about the score, but well, I said that I said you talked oh, about I'm it but like 15 minutes sorry, after the podcast. I realized no one else really brought it up and that's like probably an oversight. My bad. I just, I think that if you played like the, like the motif, like the soft motif, of this film, like it's just one of those immediately recognizable um, pieces of pieces of music for me. So it's just, you know, this, this film holds a special place in my heart. I think there's so many different lenses. Like we could probably just do a whole podcast just on no face as a character. Cause I think it's one of those things that just says so much um, with, with frankly a subplot <laughs> of the movie. It's like not even really what the movie's about. And I mean, it's one of the things the movie's about, but it's not the main plot of the film. And I think that is again, just like one of the remarkable feats of the movie that it just sort of buries this whole statement about attitudes of people, about consumerism as a culture, about all these things that are sort of different for Miyazaki. And there's like touches of it here and there and something like Kiki's and things like that, but it's not really something that he's taken on too much. Like maybe there's like a little bit of it as well in Mononoke on like a cultural front, not necessarily like a consumerism, but like more of as like a cultural representation front. But there, this, I feel like really takes it head on, but again, like not the main sort of aim of the, of the film. It's just sort of this other thing, not tacked on, but separate from sort of the, the primary plot of the film. And again, pretty, pretty fantastic. I also think uh, if we're just talking about the English dub, which I always feel like I feel conflicted about how to talk about the English dub, like, I know Scott, like we've we've started listening. All three of us started listening or watching the films in the in the English dub format. And we talk about the performances. I never really know quite what to make of that because it's not really the same as yeah. as even like a, an a, a animated film shot for the English language. It's like these people aren't really being directed in the same way that you experience. Like the like they're obviously putting an English tone onto the film, which doesn't really translate perfectly from Japanese. So I never really know quite how to talk about the English dub, I feel like when we talk about it on the podcast, but in this film, I think one of the funniest things is like, it's probably like the least prestigious cast of, of characters uh, or cast of a voice cast for the film, but they some, in some ways, I think in many ways actually deliver some of the most iconic performances in Miyazaki movies. Uh, Maybe, maybe because of that, maybe not in spite of that, but it, but because of that, maybe it works out that way, but yeah, like, I don't know. I just think everything really works. This film hums and, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's one of the one of if not the greatest film ever made. I'm not sure, but pretty great film. One of two animated films in the Sight and Sound top 100. Of course, the other one being My Neighbor Totoro, which is actually um, at 72, while this is at 75. So Totoro is actually ranked higher. But um, you know, again, I, I think among oh, Sight and Sound, circles, per- perfect list, no notes. Yeah, well, among film circles nowadays, I do yeah. think that. Um, spirited away is probably considered to be, you know, his most most beloved, most celebrated film. Although, it's you know, there it's competitive because it's not like he has 
just one masterpiece um, as as we have already discovered in doing this series of course um but yeah no so my first time for spirited away i mentioned this i think at some point earlier in the series um but i you know when i began watching the ghibli films in 2020 uh, when they all got put on hbo max um i had intended for spirited away to be sort of the grand finale of me watching the movies because obviously again it is the most iconic one and then i just never got to the finale i guess because i just didn't watch it um and you know it, it, it is one of those movies because of the hype that i feel like that, that i always felt like i need to set the mood right when i'm actually going to watch it because like um you know I, I understand that there's pretty much no chance that i'm not going to find this movie to be brilliant um and so there's there's been other movies like that i've done this like i did this with paris texas when i watched it for the first time i did it with yee some of my favorite movies but i just like put my phone down and i just am like all right we're gonna watch like you know we're gonna lock in even though i'm sitting at home and watching it um and yeah, I mean, I got the full experience and I loved the full experience. Uh, I think the movie lives up to every bit of the hype. As um, Jay was saying, I totally get why it is, why it has the reputation that it has. It feels like the synthesis of so many of the things that we've talked about Miyazaki doing well in these previous movies. Um, you know, it is a coming of age story. It is like, does have, you know, vibes so to speak like something like kiki's delivery service it has these fantasy elements but with the human undercurrent that we've seen in movies like princess mononoke for example like castle in the sky i um, mean has the environmental you know commentary less so than again something like princess mononoke or not nausicaa but it is there with particularly with like the spirits of the rivers and stuff and the polluted river basically that comes to her at the bathhouse um and it just has like these positive messages like you know again thinking maybe mostly about totoro there for like kids and adults likewise because the adults are kind of the ones who are it's a coming of age movie like you said but the adults are growing up too right because we see so many of them are like influenced in a positive way by seeing chihiro and her attitude about everything that she has faced right like she is fearless she you know knows the right thing to do and she is going to do it um because that's what she believes is is right and she's not going to really give in to the the pressure of um the whatever all, all the forces that are going against her in this world and there are quite a lot and so you know yet relatable character yes to some extent but more than anything an aspirational um character i think is what i really lock into with with chihiro and so much of what makes the movie work um i think is found in that chihiro character like probably the best you know pro protagonist that we've seen in any of these films thus far um so that's big and yeah uh, again the movie just has so much to offer you know i i talked about with princess mononoke maybe getting lost a little bit with some of the the fantasy stuff i feel like again the balance here is perfect like the images and everything that he he gives us um are like mesmerizing um but there's not all kinds of like this mythology and stuff going on that i felt like i needed to you know understand in order for the the story to work um and, and, like again i think it's a perfect we talked about with princess mononoke 
it feeling like the first film that wasn't designed for kids in any way. This feels like it is it is perfectly at the crossroads of kids and adults, right? Like Scott was mentioning it a little bit, but like, yes, there is some like sort of scary imagery and whatnot, but it feels like the fantasy stuff that's going on, the challenges that Chihiro has to encounter are not stuff that would be too upsetting for children to watch. Um, and, you know, again, the the values that this movie has to to promote in terms of, you know, being kind, being selfless, you know, being determined in the face of, of lots of things working against you. Um, that's some, that's something that anyone can relate to. Um, and again, can aspire to. So I just, more than anything, I love the character of Chihiro and the, you know, unfailing, unfailingly like sort of fearless, selfless nature, like I said, of her. Um, and how that influences everyone around her. Like, like I was saying, you know, everyone... By the but by, by the you know when she first enters the spirit world, very few people, spirits, whatever, seem to like want her there, have respect for her there. They're just not nice to her straight up. By the end of the movie, you know they're outside the the city and everyone is like basically shouting down Yubaba for wanting to give Chihiro like the final test still before she can reunite with her parents because she has won all of them over right with her her positive you know, spirit and de determination. And so, uh, and she's won us over as the audience as well. So I can't say enough good things about it. Um, it feels like, again, the perfect synthesis of what Miyazaki is all about. Like, it feels like, you know, his magnum opus. I know like The Wind Rises is kind of a more autobiographical um, movie that we will talk about probably for Miyazaki, but this just feels like, you know, he in integrates so much of the different, ideas, images, you know, and just stories that we have seen in these other movies into one sort of perfect package. So, um, yeah, lives up to all the hype. I absolutely love it. I can't wait to watch it again. It instantly rockets very high, if not to the top of um, my Miyazaki list. So, Spirited Away. Yeah, there you go. Um, Scott, you know, you mentioned like the the performances and everything. I don't think we have to get too much into that because it, it is, you know, somewhat difficult to talk about the voice performances in this English dub. Um, so why don't we start out sort of just by talking about the character of Chihiro. Sure. You know, I, I told, I said there that I think, you know, she's one of the main reasons, if not the main reason why the movie works. Um, and I'll throw it to you first on this, Scott, I guess, you know, sure. what do you, do you agree? You know, do you think, um, this is one of the strongest characters in Miyazaki um, that we've talked about. And if so, what does she add to this movie that gives it that special sauce? Yeah, I, I guess I'll say I'll say this and because I, I don't know if this directly answers your question, but I think it's sort of, sort of the thing I always think about with Chihiro is I think she's just like a really fascinating character and a synthesis of like a lot of different things Miyazaki's thought about. In the past, I mean, in a lot of ways, she's, as you pointed out, like an idealistic. I hesitate to call like any idealistic character the one that is like the strongest for me personally, because I do appreciate a lot of a lot of nuance. But I think there's so many sure. things to appreciate in that idealism where she really sort of tells this like broader story uh, for the film about how, you know, she's lost in this world without her parents, the spirit world. 
she's had her like literal identity taken from her. She's had her name taken from her. She's like forgetting who she is. Right. And like through this journey, she has a lot of idealistic qualities. I mean, some of the obvious one is just sort of her compassion and her. I mean, I don't even I, I sort of like tussle with what the right word is, but it almost feels like she's like not an opportunistic person. Like she's not trying to take advantage of situations. She's just being honest with the people around her about what she needs or what she wants. So those are sort of those sort of qualities of her endure through the loss of her identity, but like with the loss of her identity of as Chihiro, she's given this like new identity of sin and she has to then forge a new identity for herself. And rather like, although her qualities haven't necessarily changed in that process, of course she's maturing and it, you know, there is a coming of age element, but like the core of her identity, then it sort of like thrusts forward this notion of like, I am a person who wants to treat people fairly not take advantage of them um i don't necessarily need to be friends with everyone but i want to treat people well and i think that's that's sort of like very basic kernel of a concept it's something that's like again going back to something i was saying earlier like so easy to then translate to the screen in a way that feels hokey or feels like inauthentic but the way that this sort of character is rendered onto the screen and the actions that she takes it she's not going out of her way to just be like, what can I do to make your life better? Like, I just want to show you how nice I am. She's just nice. Like she it just, just her nature. Yeah. It's just her nature, right? Like that's the whole, I mean, that's a, sort of the whole thing with no face is that not to jump. She in invites sort of, him in. Yeah. Yeah. Not to jump into this sort of like side tangent like, where I talked about, we could have a whole podcast just about no face, but the fact that no face is this creature that wanders through this sort of spirit world, this bathhouse just absorbing the personality traits of people around no face and what you get from that is something pretty nasty like you what you see is like pretty nasty by the end of it and it's only chihiro's sort of you know her nature as you said as you put it scott it's her nature that sort of salvages no face and the interactions with no face that saves the bathhouse from sort of like pure destruction it feels like almost and I, I think that is sort of that is the I guess that is the ultimate microcosm of, of Chihiro's nature, because you see these little, little other examples throughout where, you know, whether she's talking to the foreman or she's talking to Yubaba, all these people. It's not that she lets people take advantage of her, but they certainly recognize that Chihiro is not someone who's going to cause issues. And as a result of that, they're able to maneuver around her nature and Yababa of course can puts her into the position where she loses her identity etc you know things that I already mentioned earlier on and I think it's only when you get to the end of the film and you encounter Yababa's twin which is um Zaniba Zaniba yes Zaniba I was about to say Glinda like wicked oh my god <laughs> what on earth is happening uh Zaniba where I think you sort of see that Cheer is not the only person in the like in this universe who's like this, but those kind of people are not at the core of society. They're sort of like she's on like the living on the exactly the outside, on the person, like the six yeah. the six train stop. Like like it takes an entire day to get to to Swamp Bottom where where she lives, and these people don't have central influence in this world, and 
it's only through Chihiro and going through these experiences, sort of really pushing forward these characteristics of herself into the for into the foreground of her identity, going to Zaniba and coming and choosing to come back, right? Finding her way back to then you know finish finish her goal of rescuing her parents and returning to the real world where you see that the effect that it's having on people right to to what i think both of you were saying earlier like she's she's a character who people don't like at first like they, they find her annoying they part of it is that she's human at first it's because she's human like oh you're a human get out like you're yeah. we don't want you here get out of here there's that there's that element to it but then it becomes like oh you're the new girl like oh you're you're like you're annoyed like you're kind of like nice annoying like in a way that they don't really sort of trust her and it's only through these other behaviors and these other actions where she gains that trust and so all that's to say like this character i don't know if if she's my favorite character in miyazaki i do think that even someone like ashitaka in some ways is a more interesting character uh in terms of the nuance that he's faced and the hard choices he has to make over the course of of princess mononoke i do think that the the protagonist of of the wind rises is another character who i describe as someone who is like a really is a very fascinating part i mean like that movie is a biopic about this like real life person who miyazaki has rendered rendered in in his film made the subject of the film so i think there's there's a lot to dissect there but chihiro is certainly someone who presents a narrative arc for a character that i think is extremely compelling in a way that not through the amount of nuance or the adventures or the amount her personality changes, but almost for the opposite reason that there, like her personality changes very little over the course of the film. And maybe that's how, and that is sort of the remarkable thing that by the end of the film, you're not sure how much Chihiro has changed in terms of what's important to her. She certainly learned a lot. She's, she's come of age in a manner that most 10 year olds, her age wouldn't, would not have experienced. I'm not saying she doesn't change, but the fact that her personality traits, like her core, it's almost like they've been reinforced and and almost uh, enabled further or, or encouraged further. And I think that's sort of what defines her as a character. And I think, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there. And it's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's like a really beautiful person to sort of watch sort of come of age in this environment. Yeah, uh, Jay, you, do, do you agree with, with Scott's take there? You know, do you find her to be a strong character in spite of the fact that maybe, um, you know, she just sort of maintains this idealistic spirit throughout the entire film. I think I agree with most of what Scott said, and I'm, I'm not saying that because there's any one thing I'm just like, no, I do. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, she, she does maintain that, but not because not because she's fearless. Like, I think it's a word you used to describe her earlier, Scott Harvey. And I would almost like push back on that. Like, just like, she's, you know, she's acting fearless, like, you know, in the face of it all, but like, she's clearly just like yeah. scared out of her mind, especially in the beginning. Right. Just like, you know, trying everything to stand her ground. Like if we start with, you know, like, give me a job, I'd really like a job. I must insist. Like, you know, she's not those exact words, but she, you know, it's, it's, like I, I don't I don't find that insistence and perseverance a reason to not like find her compelling. I think I agree that there might be a protagonist or two in the larger filmography that I might find more compelling for other reasons, but like this is still a, a top three protagonist for sure. Um for all the reasons that you both have already covered and like I don't need to rehash. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I think 
maybe not quite fearless because she does have that moment finally, which I really liked when she's in Zaniba's house at the end and she kind of like finally cracks a little bit and starts crying and like saying that she's, she's scared. She's worried that she's going to, uh, well, she's worried because she is starting to forget things and she worries that, you know, her, her name and everything is next. Um, but so not fearless necessarily, but again, she, her, she's not letting her fear, prevent her from doing what she believes to be yeah. the right thing. i think i think maybe maybe the word be like she's courageous right she's manages yeah. to push yes. through that fear because like frankly i think she's not that fear and being afraid are like inherent like necessarily the same thing but like just in terms of the thing you're pointing around about crying like she's crying a lot in the first hour of the film like she's crying when she's for like when they when they're going to sleep for the first night or whatever like she's like crying her sleeping bag she's crying on the stairs after Haku leaves her before she has to climb down. Mm -hmm. She's like, there's this very claustrophobic shot, right? Where she's like looking down the stairs and, you know, if you're not only claustrophobic, like tight space element, but then of course the sort of steep drop off the cliff into the sea or not sea below. I <laughs> sometimes see, and then after it rained, definitely see area below. So I think there's a lot of, again, I don't know what the right word for it is, but like, there's certainly a lot. She's like, Clearly, she's feeling overwhelmed at many points in the film. But again, like, I think going back to what you were saying, Scott, like she's able to push through that and like show courage or, you know, courage or fearlessness. I think, you know, you can get lost in, in terminology, maybe. But this idea of that, like, she's not someone who doesn't have these emotions that I think we can all understand in her situation, but she's someone who's for someone so young, able to process those emotions in a way that allows her to work through them and uses the support of, of the few individuals or creatures around her, whether it's, whether it's Haku or earlier on in the film, or whether it's Zaniba or the transformed bow. Uh, and then the, what's the bird's name? Is that, is that Algeru or something like that? I can't remember whatever the bird little mini Yababa bird is as well. Like, I think that she's sort of using these yeah. friends that she, and Lynn, these friends that she's Lynn, made yeah, along the way to, a, as the, a support structure for her, right. In the moments where she needs them to give her support so that she can continue to be brave. And I think that's something that works out really well in her favor. Yeah. And transitioning then, because I think that, um, you know, as strong of a character as Chihiro is, um, you know, it's a character driven film in general, and that doesn't just include her. I think it also includes a lot of the people that we're talking about that she comes into contact with, whether it's Haku, who is a real ally for, for her throughout the entire film, or it's somebody like Yubaba or Lynn, who start off as, you know, uh, posed, posed as opposites to her as, you know, um, working against her. But by the end, she has seemingly won them over to a certain extent um what do you guys think about the role that you know some of these characters play in this movie in terms of what the movie is trying to say what the movie is trying to do who of like the ensemble you know stuck out to you in particular and and i know we want to talk about no face so if you, if you want to spend a moment to do that i mean pick one like i i, I can take no face if you want i feel like we We've already joked that we could spend a whole podcast talking about No Face, but I think we could also spend another episode or two talking about, you know, Zaniba versus Yubaba, 
you know, the baby and the bird, like Lynn, you know, I, and Haku. Like, I think we could we could spend an episode on all of them. Um, I think I already already said this earlier, but I think the 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 story of No Face, which I think you know, one of you pointed out, is not even really like the the main thing that's happening here, right? But I think you know to me felt like in a sea of like impactful moments or, or story arcs or plot points, like might be, you know, my favorite just because of, again, you know, you see everyone kind of turning their back on this person who admittedly, you know, like Scott Shelton, you said, you know, is, is getting kind of gross and like, you know, he's, he's acting really nasty. And, you know, the fact that, you know, he is able to, you know, I, I guess just like serve for me as a reminder that like, you know, people can be one thing in one situation, be another, a completely different thing in another. And as long as we're able to like see through that in people or like give people that chance, right? Like, you know, again, Shihiro is the only one who will do that. And that's what we find her so inspiring. But the fact that, you know, she, that I feel like No Face kind of exists to solidify that, that, you know, people do deserve to be treated fairly. Like No Face hadn't done anything inherently bad. Certainly at the beginning, he had like helped her out. Um, and, you know, rather than just like, you know, fall into this hysteria that everyone else is doing, uh, in some admittedly very, you know, amazingly animated scenes where people are like running around the bathhouses. Like, I feel like, you know, those scenes were so hectic and so well-drawn, um, you know, just that, just showing us that, right. Like, I feel like that, that that's a nice thing for both kids. That, 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 that's another perfect intersection of like for kids and adults that, Hey, like, you know, the monster may not be inherently evil. He's he's made evil, I think, you know, the movie suggests because he's consuming all of these other people in the the town who themselves are not, you know, behaving the way that they should. Again, are, are reacting towards Chihiro with these negative attitudes. And so it it rubs off on, you know, him. It's it's peer pressure, I guess, if you want to try to like ground the ideas that are, are sort of working with this character. Um, so yeah, it's it's not you know necessarily like you say that he's inherently evil. That anyone is inherently evil. But if you expose yourself to these negative influences, um, then that's going to start to to affect you. And that's what we see with No Face because he's quite literally consuming them. And the more that he consumes them, you know, the more sinister sort of he becomes. Yeah, th there's some elements of No Face that are that are very on the nose. I think the like literal consumption of people mm -hmm. and then adopting their limbs. Like he has like the legs of the frog and the voice of the frog mm -hmm. that he consumes at first and other personal traits. But I, I do ultimately think that in spite of how on the nose some of those things are, it, like a ton of elements of this film, it doesn't feel on the nose in like the wrong way where mm -hmm. it's very it's almost helpful to illustrate exactly what it's doing because you you use him or it as a foil for Chihiro, right? Like this, there's this person who we just spent, you know, 20 minutes in the podcast talking about what's so remarkable about her characters that her, her nature and her ideals are resilient through these experiences. No face as like, as like an entity is sort of the opposite of that. Like no face is designed as a character to literally consume the things around him. Or it again. I don't. Know. I'm applying a pronoun to it that I don't. I mean, I don't think it makes it clear in the movie if there's a, such a thing for that. But no face is consuming these personality traits around in in its environment, literally consuming individuals and and more directly adopting that. And what you see, as we sort of, I think we've all said at this point at different at different times, 
you see this thing that's not very pleasant. Like you, you sort of get the image of the way the people are in the bathhouse reflected back in this way. That's like awful. It's like really awful. And it takes no face being exposed to this person with like really grounded, like a, a really grounded personal ethic, not in like a moral, like a morality sense, but this notion of like clearly defined identity of how she wants to act and treat people. And it takes that in order to like get reflected back. And that's not even begin to touch on some of the things around like what the sort of consumer, like the, the consumerist culture. And I think this is where both no face and Yababa sort of like start to interact because obviously Yababa's, you know, personal ethic, you, Scott, I mean, thinking, reminding me of last week, like talking about someone who thinks that they're above themselves, but above the rest of the people in their, in their, in their town or their immediate environments. Like Yababa yes. is, is that, um, mm -hmm. and you're talking about the way lady Aboshi last week, dresses like the way Yababa dresses is so clear that she is di completely different than everyone else. The Western influence, yeah. the Western influence, like sort of the gaudy purse, like jewelry that Jay was sort of miming uh, for listeners of the podcast a second ago. But, but like, again, the actual just garb, like the fact that she's wearing like a European style, American style dress. And of, of course the rest of the bathhouse employees are wearing more. I would, can only assume it would be considered traditional Japanese garb. And now that is, and, and like her personal living quarters are the, are super gaudy. It's like these massive top floor with tons of rooms and the room where her where the baby stay. I don't even know if it's her child or what it is, but like where the baby stays is like so like it looks like something out of an American film, not out of the rest of Hayao Miyazaki's like Japanese animated features. And compare that to cut like to all of the individuals, uh, all the workers and all the women in the bathhouse sleeping in like the same room in your traditional Japanese layout on the floor with like the mat, with the blanket, um, very minimalist, extremely minimalist. And you get that culture. And Miyazaki, I think, is making a pretty strong stance that if you let like, sort of this sort of consumerist Western idealist culture come into play and you and you sort of take that to its maximal sort of endpoint, which of course is an exaggeration. Of course, that is like over the top, right? But if you take it to that point, what you get in return is people treating each other really poorly. And I think you, you see get that consumed. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. I've been quite literally with no face that you're absolutely right. And I think that it, and that is where it's going back to Chihiro because everything goes back to Chihiro in this movie and, and Chihiro, even in the face of that culture, she's able to sort of be be stalwart in her choice to treat people the same way and not accept the gold, right? I mean, that's several times in the course of the film. She she just keeps getting offered gold or whatever she wants. Will she just take this from, thing from No Face? But From the very beginning, the food, right? Like her parents are very quick yep. to eat the food and she will not do it because she knows it's not the right thing to do. Um, I'm going to get mad. But yeah. Yeah, no, greed is definitely a huge motivator for the the villains, so to speak, in this sure. this film. But obviously something that never influences Chihiro. Another scene, obviously, is the that I really enjoy is the scene with the polluted river spirit that I was alluding to earlier, yeah. who comes to the the bathhouse and nobody wants to have anything to do with him um because of how he looks you know, and whatnot. Um, and Shihiro is just kind of ordered to, you know, take care of him. 
which she ends up doing. And, um, you know, she, she puts in the care and time that, um, you know, she, that, that this, this spirit deserves. Um, and uh, honestly, that's like one of the most stunning animation. Some of the most stunning animation in the movie is that whole sequence with the spirit and taking the bicycle handle out of him. Um, and, you know, just watching him transform. Um, and, you know, again, her, her kind actions are rewarded uh, because she ends up with that, that magical dumpling Paul. thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, Which she then gives um, away to other people. Right. She's she, literally in the yeah. scene with no face. She has half of it left. And she's like, I was saving this for my parents. Literally, the reason that she is the whole goal that she's trying to accomplish, right? Getting her parents free. Yeah. Um, but she just because, again, she sees that that no face is hurting. Um, she is willing to sacrifice that to do what she knows she needs to do in that moment. Couldn't be. Um, so. Yeah, again, it, it just every little thread, every little character that she interacts with, all of their individual stories just feel so perfectly calculated by Miyazaki, like to, you know, develop this character and just serve the overall message. What do we think about Haku? We haven't mentioned him much, but he is a pretty major character in the film. You know, the one person who sort of shows a lot of compassion to Chihiro from the beginning, but obviously he is someone who came here and he has forgotten who he was right so he is he is doomed to stay there in the spirit world unless chihiro is able to help him which she eventually is um and there's there's a lot of conversation about the role that love plays and particularly in their relationship scott you know what do you think yeah. about this character and how he is connected to all of the different ideas we've been talking about well, ironically, he's still doomed to stay here forever in the spirit world. And, yeah. and that sort of goes hand in hand with the thing that we were just talking about with the river spirit, which is, uh, Scott, I don't know if I've said this before in the series, but environmentalism is a theme in this film. I don't know if that's come up before, but when you sort of combine the river spirit with the other river spirit, which actually turns out to be Haku, the spirit of the Kuaku is a Kuaku river, something like that. Um, I forget the pronunciation. Yeah, so I, I apologize. It's, it's only said like towards the end. Yeah, yeah. So the differences between at least the way that I read the film with Haku and then the sort of more generic river spirit that was polluted is that even though Haku finally is able to remember his real identity, he's not a, he's not able to return to the real world because his river doesn't exist anymore. There's been these there's this housing development that's been built on top of it. Yeah, it's destroyed, yeah. it's destroyed the river. And so he's even after all that still stuck in the spirit world. You know, the, the love thing's interesting. I roll my eyes a little bit when I hear people do this, um, but I'm now going to to do it. So I, I take that for what it's worth. But I really don't read the love angle like too strongly. Like it really feels like there's this. And I feel like this is consistent with Chihiro's character, but it really reads more like compassion to me, like a lot. Like when I watch this movie, I think a lot about like, Yes, they have this special bond, and and I hesitate to to say that like I just kind of disagree with like what the words themselves are. At least in terms of the localization, I don't know how the like origin of the Japanese would necessarily compare. But I think there's this really strong notion of like Chihiro just showing a lot of compassion for the people around her, especially for Haku, because he shows her that compassion very early on. And I think one of the real bonds of the film that develops is 
that Haku provides this sort of environment and the support, going back to something that I was saying earlier, early on, to remind Chihiro that there is still compassion in this world full of people or individuals or spirits or whatever creatures that feels bereft of compassion otherwise this consumerist culture all these things and haku sort of is this like individual that sits outside of it where lynn and and all the other people in the bathhouse are telling her that you can't trust him because he's yababa's henchman and you don't even really know what no one really knows what his motives are or anything like that whereas haku is is like in all for pretty much all instances is showing a lot of compassion for chihiro's situation and wants to help her and there is this previous connection in the real world between the two of them because she almost drowned in in the river that he was the spirit of, the Kwaku River. And there is this sort of realization later on. And and there's a couple frames in, throughout the film where you see what you then eventually realize is this scene where she's like almost drowning in the river as a very young child. But yeah, Haku is, I think it's just a not the most compelling character in the story for me because I really do see him as a sort of foundation for Chihiro to feel comfortable to be herself in this world. And that's really important. But I think the reality too, outside of this notion of a reminder that we are killing the environment around us and we're sort of like almost condemning these, these sort of supernatural spirits of the, of the, as you said, supernatural spirits of the natural world, these spirits of the natural world to a, a life in that is more in the spirit realm and not in reality like this this treatment of the supernatural of the spirits of environmentalism in the film like we're condemning these these spirits to find new identities and new roles for themselves beyond what they are what their original purpose was and i don't know if if i find that to be the part of the story that's most memorable or most compelling but i certainly think it's an important part of chihiro's arc and i think that there's still something there to say with Haku, just that it's not the thing that I sort of immediately think of or go to in the film. Jay, anything you want to add about Haku? I mean, I think I actually surprisingly largely agree with Scott Shelton again. Like I well, mark I the time, mark the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think you know when I revisit this, whenever I do like he'll or when I'm just thinking about this, like however much time from now, a few weeks, months from now, like that he'll be one of the first things I think about. I think I've kind of agreed that he is just there to kind of serve up that, you know, this, this support for Chihiro that, you know, allows her to like Scott, you just said, like be herself. You know, I, I think there was something really nice about, you know, the, the culmination of, you know, you two did know each other before and, you know, you like, you know, you'll, you'll find your way back. I resisted all the urge to lean uh, next to you, Scott Shelton and say, no one's ever really gone um, when that happened. But I, yeah, I mean, I don't think that the, you know, the, the love thing again, also like is a little bit weird for me. It, that, that really does feel like a localization thing, you know, where it feels like, you know, they keep, they use the word like true love, like twice, I think. And I, you know, like, and I'm rolling my eyes. Cause I'm like, I don't think this is what they, yeah. Z Zaniba uses that word I yeah. think specifically. Yeah. Or uses that like, phrase. I, I don't think that that means what it was supposed to mean, you know, when they translate it. And like, again, like I, you know, we'll, we'll never, unless we just become like Japanese linguistics experts, I'm sure we won't like really know what it was trying to convey or just ask someone, I guess, but it, Oh, that's you know, not an option. We can't ask anyone. <laughs> yeah. 
I I would love to revisit this. Maybe like you know this this feels like what I'm gonna rewatch in Japanese just to like see you know how it it you know the voices themselves are different and how they're you know played and like they're you know how they were like originally meant to. But also we'll just be curious like how that does you know whoever decided to translate it does translate it because I don't think it'll say you know compassion, but I think there is something very like you know, American specific about like true love as a thing that, you know, again, it feels like it's playing to kids and it's conveying this message that like, I don't think that's what you mean here. You well, know? if you go see it again for Ghibli Fest next year, then you'll probably get the sub because I believe that's how they do it is they alternate every year with the movies, whether you see the sub or the dub, but I could be wrong about that. Um, I think the, I think the interesting thing about that is that there's still some, role of that I, I think the interesting note about the kids point is an is like i could see something there with that it, it also just feels like it's it's one of those i don't know like ultimately disney is the one like localizing the film in this case in spirited away and like it's just that that feels like something you see in a disney movie. you know what i mean like that element specifically is like oh that this is in snow white you know what i mean or like just every classic animated film yeah. From Disney, it's just like oh, true love, exactly like yeah, what the was love being said angle. there. Yeah. It sort of it sort of feels kind of like that. Like that feels like a almost like a hair, like a lineage of almost that element of of the film. So again, yeah, I, I would be curious. I'm going to learn Japanese just so I can understand exactly what the source material means by that. But we'll Scott, see. if you can do it by tomorrow night, the Regal on 42nd Street is showing it in Japanese, and then <laughs> oh. you, you can understand it, and then you can tell me. Sure. Right. See you there. <laughs> no, you won't because you're not going to attend. Because I have to tell you after. I want you won't. I won't see you there. That's the whole problem. Oh, shame. <laughs> oh, anything. Shame. <laughs> anything that you guys want to say about the ending of the movie? Uh, because obviously, you know, we've talked about sort of how Haku's story wraps up, Chihiro's story wraps up. There's this, you know, moment where she she returns, and basically the entire town is now on her side again. And, and Yubaba wants to make her do the final test, which is to see if she still recognizes her parents. The, the townspeople are saying that they do not want her to do that or to have to do that. And Chihiro says, no, I'll do it. Um, and then she of course correctly points out that her parents aren't there, right? That she doesn't recognize them amongst the, the, the folks and they end up, you know, being freed from their pig forms and, you know, they get in the car and they keep on driving. Um, what do you think about this as a resolution to the film? Um, you know, the fact that, again, we it kind of just starts off. They they drive up. This whole adventure happens. And now at the end of the film, it's like, OK, we're getting back to what we were doing. We're driving on. We're going to get right back to the to the new house. Um you know, do you take anything away from that sort of final minute, I guess, because it did just strike me that it's kind of a anti, not, not anticlimactic, like in a bad way, but just a uh, sort of lower key ending perhaps than you expect from the movie that they're just going to kind of go back to what they were doing at the start of the film. I actually, I feel like that's exactly how I thought the movie was going to end. <laughs> so I, I guess I didn't find that too surprising. I did want to ask, and like maybe this is really obvious, and I'm just blind. But when they get out of the tunnel, right? Like the car is covered in like leaves and stuff. Like, is it not meant to imply that like time, the time that time they spent passed, there has yes. passed? So like when they get in the car and they go home, they're gonna see like 
where are the movers? Oh, wait a second. It's like October 21st. Didn't we start moving on like September 3rd? What happened here? Like, or however much time has passed. Like, it, well, I think you know, the overgrowth like, is meant to imply that it's maybe even years. Which like, isn't for. that like, hey, like, you know, again, I'm not going to read. I, this is going to take nothing away from the movie for me. Right. But I did have this moment of like, wait, are they going to go back to their lives and realize that they just like went missing? Like, yeah, I well, know. I guess like, yeah, what in the true. manifest just happened here? Right. Like, I don't know. I think that's like maybe, you know, playing into sort of the coming of age angle of the movie. Right. And how quickly time passes how uncertain the how uncertain the future can be and now having been you know armed by these experiences chihiro is going to have to go into an uncertain human world um and you know try to um display the same values that she displayed and you know eventually accomplishing her goal in the spirit world um and so yeah, I mean, it's like she's grown up a lot, basically, is kind of the, the most basic read of it, I guess, over the course of this this movie. And, you know, maybe they all have. Yeah, I, I think I'm still trying to really understand for myself what exactly it means for that much time to have passed. I think it's one of those things where, like, obviously, the story ends, right? We don't know how much exactly how much time passes we don't know if their house even is there like even is theirs anymore right like the, we don't the story stops there and we don't know what happens after but yeah like i think a very 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 considerable time amount of time has passed even though chihiro is only in the spirit world for a few days and i think there's this I think there is this meta element that is, oh, Chihiro has has grown up. Like, so much time has passed for Chihiro's maturity. But I also think it speaks to how easy it is to become lost um, you know, in this world where there's so many new things and time passes so quickly in that respect. Again, it's one of those things that I still sort of think about when the whenever the movie ends and when I'm watching it and I never know fully what to make of it. Or maybe I always feel like there's something more that's just out of reach for me to comprehend, but I haven't gotten there. But I, yeah, I think what we see in the film is something, you know, years and years and years have passed for the amount of growth that happens in, in just the, like the vegetation around the site. I'm saying if, they, if that's real, then this really is the horror movie that people were saying it was. Cause you know, that's terrifying. Like show me the sequel. Like, well, coming of age, growing up is terrifying. Sure. It's it's a well fact said. That it'll be really terrifying when they come out and it's 2011, you know? Horrifying for them. Yeah. I think one of the uh, things I, I do want to say, and this I think this goes back a little bit to Haku as well as a character. Um because just talking about time passing in Japanese like 2001 to 2011 in Japan made me think of it but one of these elements that i i think where i at least cannot connect with and i imagine you guys are the same is that i think there's a really strong sort of statement or thematic heft of like the point in time this film is being made in japan whereas there's this real conflict is my understanding between sort of new wave japanese culture and like traditional japanese culture and like shinto buddhism and spirituality and things like that and i i can like we can access some of those elements in some of those conversations, but I think there's like a real part of this film that is having this sort of 
almost generational debate about culture of which I'm not sure the film provides an answer, but I think it poses a question about spirituality. Uh, and I think Haku as a character sort of really sits with that things like the river spirit and connection to nature, things like that, those, those sort of elements really resonate in that up against someone like Yababa, who is sort of becoming more Westernized and, and, there's a different consumerism that we've already talked about. I, I think there's like a wrapper of like uh, this sort of generational conversation happening about Japanese culture that, you know, escapes me because I, a, I was barely right. even alive at that point, but certainly wasn't aware of Japanese culture at the time. But that's like another element of the film that we haven't even discussed that. I mean, I don't really know how to discuss that, but I think it's important yeah. to say because it's a huge reason why I think the film sparked like, huge popularity in Japan. I mean, also Ghibli and Mononoke being so big. It was the, I mean, Princess Mononoke was the highest grossing animated film in Japanese history before. And then leading into this film, the next Ghibli film, and then it became this film. So yeah, I think there's just a lot there that obviously I don't know how to discuss because I don't have that experience. Well, let me discuss it because I yeah, do. Have please that. do. I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, luckily, think... luckily, if we come back tomorrow, I'll have learned Japanese, the Japanese language, and presumably with that Japanese culture, and we'll be able to discuss it. So. Yeah, that's true. We're we're working on that tonight. Yep. But, um, yep. Yeah. But yeah, no, work. you're right, and I think I think that's cool, right? I think that this movie has so much to offer us, you know, that we have talked about today, and so many takeaways that we have, and yet there's even more to the film that you know, we aren't able to access just because, you know, we aren't as familiar with this period in Japanese history and culture. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, just speaks to the depth of Miyazaki's filmmaking and, um, you know, how, how much he can pack into a seemingly simple story of, you know, a, a little girl having to overcome some, you know, adventures to, to save her parents. Um, all right. Well, I think we can probably move into the wrap up at this point. We've been talking for about an hour now on this movie. So, uh, Jay, your uh, favorite scene or moment from Spirited Away? It's a tough choice. It really is. I think I'll go with the train ride on the way out. I think that, you know, a lot has happened to like get us to this point, right? Like, I think the scene before where No Face is kind of going on that rampage, and then, you know, we, we do get you know, Chihiro being really touching and being like, you know, I like, you know, take this again. It was meant for my parents. Like that was a lot, but I, to me, you know, I guess like the kind of the sitting in that afterwards, you know, like literally giving us that time on the drain to like sit in that a little bit. And like, you know, the way she's just able to like bring no face along, like, are you coming? Do you want to come? Like, you know, she's like asking the conductor, you know, like, can, you know, can, can the four of us all go? And, you know, no face is kind of just coming down and, Chihiro's like, you know, like, come here, like, sit here. It's okay. Like, just really stepping up in that moment. Like, you know, one of several times she does that. It, you know, there, I think there's, there's probably a reason why that, I feel like that image of the two of them sitting on the train is uh, one that I've seen a lot. And, you know, that, that's probably, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's probably a very beloved scene. And it, I think it's my favorite. Scott? Yeah, there's so many. I, I think partially because of the score. I'm always partial to the moment when Chihiro and Haku are flying back and there there is the sort of climactic soaring moment. But sort of the compliment to that is sort of at the beginning when Chihiro is the most terrified. I do think the scene, the shot 
that sort of shows the side of the bathhouse with the stairs down. I mean, that is such an iconic image. That is another sort of frame or another scene that I like. Is really for the first time you see her have to swallow the sense of overwhelming anxiety that she must be feeling in this moment to be complete for the first time because Haku was sort of there. Like she has to swallow that and find a way to walk down those stairs and start the process of getting her parents back. And I think that's like a really moving moment because of what she's having to go through and endure as this, you know, very young 10 year old. And so, but both those scenes sort of stick out in my mind. So I don't know which one I'd choose it. And, and if you ask me tomorrow, it'd probably be a different scene, but pretty cool. Pretty cool score in this film. Joe yeah. Hisaishi. We probably haven't talked enough about it in the whole series. So, yeah, it's it's easy to forget his contributions because they're just so uniformly excellent. I think that it's just kind of what you expect. It's kind of hard to like talk about them because they're just like you're just like yeah. yeah I mean, it's Joe Saishi's just ripping out another all time. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I, I I just will call out once again the scene with the polluted river really stood out to me just from a technical standpoint and also from a storytelling standpoint. I think just signaling the selflessness of Ch of Chihiro. Um, again, bringing that sort of environmental commentary in there that Miyazaki's known for. Uh, it just feels like there's so much in that brief segment uh, episode from the movie that um, I, I couldn't help but admire it quite a lot. I will say one of one of my favorite quotes in the film, um, which is not necessarily my favorite scene, but there is this um, is this point. I think it's with Zaniba. I think she, when when she's talking to Zaniba where they're having this conversation about Chihiro forgetting, uh, forgetting her name, forgetting her past, forgetting her parents. Like she's worried she's going to forget all these things. And it's the point that Jay sort of almost alluding, or he was joking about like leaning over to me and um, sort of uh, joking about, you know, people are never truly gone or whatever. But I think one of the, one of the, like one of the quotes that always gets me is it's something to the effect of you know once you've met someone you never forget them they're always they're always there even if you can't remember and i think that's like one of the quotes that just sort of gets me every single time i watch this movie it just kind of hits me like a freight train every time yeah for sure um that was one that stuck out to me as well um and you know even the last line of the film as well as one that you know i really loved where Chihiro just says I think I can handle it, right? That's, you know, that that's sort of... She's getting arrogant. From this whole experience. She thinks she yeah. can handle it, and then it's 2011, and she's she like, what the some... hell happened to me? It's 2016, and Donald Trump's president. <laughs> yeah, of Japan, which go. is the crazy Of Japan, part. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right, guys, let's put a score on it. Uh, Jay, what do you give? Spirited away out of 10. I think I know where this is going. Is, is there even a doubt? Like, do we have to yeah. do this? Let's just wrap up. 10. Sure. Scott? 10. It's a triple ten. Uh, there's really no denying it. Second uh, of the of the series. <laughs> it's not the everyday yeah, you hear that. It, it is. That's true. Um, and we only have a handful of those total, so that's a big deal. But yeah, you know, we'll see at the end of the series whether it's able to crack to my number one spot. The top five. But, yeah. We'll yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's so good. Like, I don't know why I waited so long to watch this movie, but I'm glad that you know I still have a lot of time left to rewatch it over and over again because 
I love it. And this was the perfect time of year to watch the movie too. So it was fun to to get sure. to watch it, you know, here in the fall around Halloween time. Sure. Um, all right. Well, that should do it for this episode of the Miyazaki Countdown. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Um, we have a lot of great tiers over there where you can support us, uh, even if you can't support us. However, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Check out Some Like It, Scott, right here in the same feed. New movie reviews um, every week on Some Like It, Scott. And, of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the Miyazaki Countdown, on which we will be reviewing another fantasy adventure from Hayao Miyazaki, the 2004 film Howl's Moving Castle. But until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.